We, we begin this uh, session on an organization that we made brief reference to uh, yesterday in passing remarks how the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, was little known and less well understood and therefore hardly recognized and appreciated by Americans uh, in general until almost a decade had passed uh, since its creation and that many for longer than that thought it had something to do with the Gulf of Mexico. So we, we know that in this year, its 30th anniversary, uh, that it has been doing far more, even if seemingly in the shadows or low profile, low key on a deliberate uh, uh, procedural uh, track, uh, than many Americans have been aware. And uh, we have five speakers, all of them intimately associated not only with the existence of this institution, but its strengths, its weaknesses, its uh, limitations, and its achievements, its accomplishments, its dreams, its aspirations. Um, but just to provide a context for it as a frame of reference, many unfairly compare it to or contrast it to the European Economic Union aspects of which, indeed, its visionaries and strategic founders had in mind that they, too, might someday be able to achieve. And yet, consider the uh, following in terms of how arduous the odds were against their making success uh, in the immediate period after their establishment. One, death was on their doorstep in terms of the Iran-Iraq war, which lasted for eight years. September 1982, August of 1988. Uh, there was no such situation when NATO or the European Union uh, were founded, and therefore the, the latter was easier than to found the GCC. Secondly, there were pre-existing regional institutions, the European Coal and Steel uh, Community, uh, which uh, provided lessons from which the GCC uh, founders uh, listened and learned greatly. Thirdly, the EU founders were all uh, assured of their external security through NATO and the United States being a member of NATO. There's been no remotely comparable formal institutional arrangement between powers that could protect the GCC countries and the GCC uh, itself. And fourthly, those who founded the European Union did so in the aftermath of an economically, psychologically, and emotionally devastating Second uh, World War. Uh, and 19 countries had been laid on their back by the forceful uh, imposition of uh, uh, Germans' uh, fascist Nazi government's uh, will. Uh, the GCC countries did not have that either as an impetus to found themselves. So they've succeeded in spite of some seemingly insurmountable odds to come into existence and to remain this long and to thrive and be more robust than people are aware, and this being its 30th uh, anniversary. It is to date the longest, most successful uh, Arab sub-regional uh, organization working on regional specific cooperation issues in modern Arab history. Our first uh, speaker will be Dr. Abdul Khalik Abdullah, uh, who is a professor at the National University in the United Arab Emirates in Al Ain. He's a much published 
author. We've been friends for three decades or longer. He's gotten his PhD from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Dr. Abdulkhalik Abdullah. Thank you, John. It is an honor to be in a panel chaired by, uh, by you here. I deeply respect and admire all the good work you have been doing uh, throughout these uh, decades to promote uh, a better understanding of the region and uh, the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council. Uh, I'm also uh, pleased that I'm back here to Washington where I did my master at the American University, a PhD at Georgetown University. Also, I met my wife in this city too. So uh, you could imagine how much I love uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, let me also uh, admit that half of what I wanted to see has uh, evaporated uh, during the 15 hours uh, flight from Dubai to Washington. So you're going to end up with the, you know, the boring half, I guess, uh, of my presentation. I will limit myself to three uh, thoughts. Uh, one will focus on the dynamics of the recent events in the region. The second is the, uh, the, the impact of these events on the Gulf Cooperation Council states. And the third, if time allows and if, uh, uh, if I have uh, time uh, left, I will also uh, have a, a, a comment or two on uh, the implication for the American policy in the region. Uh, so let me start with my first uh, comment here. Uh, the year 2011 has been a good year for the Arab. We had bad years, we had ugly years, we had very few, bad, uh, very few good years, and 2011 is one of those rare good years for, for, for the Arab. And uh, 2011 is not over yet, but it has changed uh, the political uh, landscape in so many different ways. Uh, changes that have been uh, dreamed to so many of us. Uh, let me just uh, mention a few of these uh, real, deep, and epical changes that 2011 has uh, brought to the Arab world first change, which is very important, is that forces of change has been unleashed in a massive way throughout the region. Forces of change has been unleashed in a way that we have not seen in decades and have created new dynamism and have brought to the region a new dawn. Second, three bad guys have already left the scene. Three bad guys have already gone. Two bad guys are in deep trouble, and many others are really in, 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 in shaky ground. The days of corrupt dictators are over in the region, and that's good news for us. Third, nearly, nearly, Nearly 130 million Arabs are freer today than they were at the beginning of 2011. 
Nearly 130 million Arabs are today politically emancipated. They were not just 10 months ago. 80 million of them are in Egypt alone. The combined energy that these free men and women are bringing to the region is going to, is going to uh, create a better future, something that we have been striving for for so long. Four, the youngest democracy in the world today is born in our region. That was a dream we have always strived for. The youngest democracy in history, in the world, is today born in Tunisia, in the Arab world. And at least four countries, at least four Arab states are by all standards of democracy are today more democratic than they were just 10 months ago. That includes Morocco for sure, that includes Libya for sure, that includes Egypt, and that includes also Jordan. Possibly others are in their way too. So the youngest democracy is uh, born today in the Arab world, not anywhere else. We have been waiting for this moment for decades. More significantly, fifth, more important than all of the above, is that the Arabs are in the driving seat once, at least for once. And they have done all of this job by themselves and on their own. They had to fight their own bad guys by themselves. And that's an immense source of pride for the 300 million Arabs. We did it in our own this time. We didn't have to invite America. Thanks God, this is made in the Arab world. It's not made in Washington or in America. That's very important and significant in understanding the historical momentum that the Arab world is going through today. So, this 2011 has been a good year for the Arab. It even brought us a Nobel Peace Prize. It might also make it possible we will get the Time Magazine Man of the Year Award and so many other awards coming along. So, this has been a very interesting, very important moment in our history. I'll call it the Arab Freedom Moment. Many regions in the world have gone through that moment. It's been postponed for so long for this region. It is finally there. It is the Arab Freedom Moment. The popular phrase for it is the Arab Spring. From all that I could tell, this Arab Spring, spring is still in its 15, in it, it is still in its first 15 minutes of the hour. It's not over yet. Many good news is yet to come and many surprises are, should be expected before the end of this year. So all this talk about the end of Arab Spring and autumn and summer, etc., etc., is just complete, total misreading of the things that is happening in, uh, on ground. The way I look at this is not just the class, is not just half full, it is full to the rim. That's how I look at the events of 2011. That's my first comment. The second comment has to do with how the Arab Spring manifests itself in the GCC states, the Arab Gulf states.
how the GCC responded, reacted to the epochal changes in the region. Let me give you my few brief thoughts on this uh, question. They were definitely influenced by this, by the events of 2011. However, the deep thinking, the official reading, the official discourse in the region is that the Arab Gulf states are different and exceptional. That's the official discourse that you would hear it resonating throughout the region. But the reality is different. The reality says the dynamics of the recent events has reached the Arab Gulf states in a massive way. And the governments in the Gulf are taking these challenges and these dynamics very seriously. They are not taking any chances and they know from first hand how deadly it could be and they point out to Bahrain and of course Oman. But Bahrain experience was tragic and deadly and there was no way but to take these events seriously, as seriously as you could imagine. Despite the discourse, the, dis the official discourse that we are exceptional and we are immune, nobody is taking any of these changes lightly. Now, as a result, there are winners and there are losers in the Gulf as a result of the winds of change. There are the, the, the Arab Spring has also exposed some weak points and some strong points in the Gulf. And finally, there were cases of the most impacted and there were cases of the least impacted. And let me briefly go through some of these things and give you how the landscape is shaping up and how the Arab Gulf states were impacted and influenced by the events of 2011. Uh, the fundamental, the, 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 the important point to make here is that the impact has been uneven. It has not been even. It has, it has been uneven throughout the region and the Arab Gulf state has reacted differently to these winds of change. And I have at least three, broadly speaking, I have at least three categories to mention here of the kind of influence of the Arab Spring on, on, on GCC states. We have cases of the most impacted, we have cases of the partial impact, and we have the case of the least impact. Bahrain, of course, is the case for the weakest link in the Gulf and the case where the most impact. Uh, uh, Bahrain was hit very badly and it went through a tragic experience of a sort and almost everybody in Bahrain got bruised one way or the other. The government was bruised, the ruling family was bruised, the people was bruised, uh, 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 the Sunni, the Shiite population were, were, were hurt, the country's reputation as, as, as a financial hub was hurt. So all in all, this experience was one of a tragic, bad experience all, on all levels for Bahrain. And Bahrain has proven to be the weakest link in the Arab Gulf state, in the Arab Gulf. 
So we do have some weak points. What the events of 2011 has brought, the message that was brought to us is that this is not a one homogeneous entity called GCC, but there are diversities in many, many cases, and there are weak points and there are strong points. Now, unlike Bahrain, of course, Qatar was the least impacted, and it's proving to be the strongest link in the Arab Gulf states. Actually, if there are a list of top winners and top losers, Qatar is by far the top winner of all of the events of the 2011. One could make even a case for the reverse. Qatar was almost always in the lead of the changes of 2011. And it proved that nobody from now on should underestimate the power of small states in the new emerging Arab landscape. The power of the small states is great and they are going to play an important role as the vacuum in the region, uh, uh, as, as there is a vacuum of the region, uh, in, in the region for a, a credible leader. Small states have their chances to, to fill in these vacuums and play a leading, a leading role. And Doha is today emerging as the political capital and the diplomatic capital and the media capital and whatever capital that you can think of of the, of the new political uh, landscape in the region. Cases of UAE, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, I put them in the category of partially impacted. If there is the most impact, the least impact, then UAE, Oman, and Saudi Arabia are among the cases of uh, uh, partially impact, and I don't really have time to go through all of them, but let me just say a word or two about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, the old kingdom of Saudi Arabia is growing older by the day, okay, if you know what I mean. It is very old, and it is getting older by the day. Now, the impact on Saudi Arabia has been mixed. It's been uh, difficult. Uh, to, 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 to pin it whether it's among the losers or the winners. Uh, but I think, um, I think anything could go wrong in Saudi Arabia any time from now on. Uh, this is a case in Saudi Arabia where everything looks perfect, resistant to change, but all ingredients for revolution, for change, for uprising, is also there too. So it's a mixture, a bag, it's a, it's a mixed package in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you have a classic case of political stagnation, lack of reform, corruption, high, uh, high unemployment, etc. So all you need in the case of Saudi Arabia is a trigger of a sort, which has not been coming, and let's hope that it doesn't come either. Now, the different cases of winners and losers, uh, the most impact and the least impact, points out to two conclusions. One, conclusion number one, that despite the deep similarities between the six GCC states, despite the deep socioeconomic and political uh, similarities, we should not lump them together. Each case is also a case 
and, and by itself in a special case and in a unique case and has responded differently from the other cases. Uh, conclusion two, it is becoming clear that forces of a status quo is much more stronger in the Arab Gulf states than the forces of change. Forces of a status quo are very strong and are very resistant. And hence, I think you, we should expect continuity, not change. And I think even the public, even the public is not in a revolutionary mood in the Arab Gulf state. They are rather in a more reform mood. So you have forces of change, weak versus forces of stability, which is, and, and, and the status quo, which is very strong, and the public is in no uh, revolutionary mode, just as the, the others are in the rest of the Arab world. Finally, the third final conclusion in here is that on the macro level, which I think Dr. Abdullah Shaiji will, will cover uh, uh, next, is that GCC as an organization has emerged as one of the big winners of the changes of 2011. As an organization, the GCC has become indispensable, has become, has, 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 has become so much a vehicle for group thinking, and group acting for the six GCC on military level and diplomatic level and all levels that you can think of and hence the GCC has emerged as a big winner. And I think it's uh, now becoming a replacement even for the Arab League. It is taking the lead on almost all issues and we could talk about that during Q&A. So uh, uh, the GCC has proven itself to be needed more than any other time in its 30 years history. And I think all the GCC states appreciate now how important this GCC uh, ha has become. Let me go to my final remarks, uh, 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 final comment on the implication for you as foreign policy. Of course, the central question here is how did America deal with the, uh, with, the, with the Arab Spring and was President Obama on the right side of history? These are good questions we all talk about in the region and it's, I have a few comments to make on, on, on this. Uh, first, of course, the, the, initial, the initial Obama administration re reaction, like everybody else, was one of surprise, of course, by the suddenness, the massiveness, and by the speed of change. Second, eventually America becomes elective in its dealing with the changes that is taking place. Washington, I think, had in mind more than anything else Iran and whether Iran is going to benefit from this or not. And I think it reacted accordingly. So there was a balance of power uh, game going on or mentality that has dictated American response to the changes in the region. Eventually, however, finally, however, I think America is showing inconsistency in its dealing with the events in the region. Not only selective, but become inc inc inconsistent. In some places, Obama was on the right side of history, and on, 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 but, but often was completely on the wrong side uh, of history. As a result, I think at least there are three final 
policy recommendation, if I may say, for Washington and, uh, and, uh, and, and, the, and, 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 and Obama administration in dealing with the new realities in the Arab world. Rule number one, the first thing that I think is important here is that avoid misreading the Arab Spring. Because I hear a lot of cynicism, a lot of dismissiveness, and a lot of uh, thinking that about doom and gloom and chaos in the region. That's complete misreading of the, of, 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 of the event. And I think the reality is, is, is different. Second, I think you need to be clearly, America needs to be clearly unambiguously on the side of change. You need to trust, deeply, genuinely trust forces of change. You have been on the side of, of a status quo for too long. Washington supported political stagnation in the Arab world for too long. I think it's time calls for America to be on the side of forces of, of change and trust forces of reform. Third, I think, and I heard that uh, uh, this morning in the opening session this morning, uh, I think it is well advised, America is well advised to think of the Arab Spring as an opportunity, not just as a challenge. There is a great opportunity in this Arab Spring and the changes of 2011. And it's a big time opportunity, not business or defense or whatever, simple opportunities. There is an opportunity for one, for a more moderate Arab world in the making. That's a huge opportunity. That's in your best interest just as much as it is in our best interest. There is an opportunity for not a democratic Arab world, but certainly for a more plural Arab world. That's an opportunity there that needs to be, uh, that needs to be thought of. These are big time opportunities. The logic of the moment calls for optimism of the mind, optimism of the will, and optimism of the action. Fourth, as I said, young, the youngest democracy in the world are born in the Arab world today. So what the Arab world, what this younger democracy needs from the more mature democracy, if you have a manual as to how to build a stable democracy, fedex it to us, fast, please, send it to us, DHL. We need that manual if you have one. You have a 200 plus years of of democracy. Do you have a manual how to, f to build a stable democracy? That's a challenge for you, okay? And I think we need that kind of manual if you really have it. And I don't think you do, but send it. If I see the mess here in Washington, maybe the place to, 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 to see that democracy coming from somewhere else rather than... But that is one challenge that is needed. Finally, I think enough of being on the wrong side of justice. It's not enough to be on the, on, on, on the right side of history. I think you need to be also on the right side of justice, which you have not been for the past 50 or 60 years. And that means the Palestinian, addressing the Palestinian issue. I think what America needs candidly and frankly, what Washington needs, what, what Americans need to do is to put this beast called Israel in leash it is becoming really a dangerous player in the region. So enough of feeding this apartheid state called Israel. And I think, and I think the Palestinians of course deserve a, a, a state of their own. And I think that your vote 
the pending vote in the Security Council is going to send a wrong message. The, two, the blocking of the $200 aid to the Palestinian Authority is going to send a wrong message. So enough of sending wrong message at this very crucial moment in our history. Decisions, policies, actions taken in Washington are very important. They're going to influence the event in, 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 in the region. And uh, it is, I think, your choice. You could, you could either be on the right side of history or wrong side of history, but it's going to be really terrible if you stay on the wrong side of justice for too long. The Arab world has changed in a massive way. The question is, will Washington change too? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Abdul Khalik. Our next speaker is Dr. Abdullah Al-Shaheji, who is no stranger to many here. He is Professor of Political Science uh, and the Chairman of the Department of Political Science at Kuwait University, has his PhD from the University of Texas, studied under the renowned James Alban Bill, amongst others there, was an American Affairs Advisor to the Speaker of Kuwait's uh, Parliament, and right after the reversal of Iraq's aggression against uh, Kuwait in 1990, and the National Council sent Dr. Abdullah Shaheji on a nationwide tour to speak to audiences and media and business communities throughout the United States, representing Kuwait. Dr. Al Shaheji. Thank you, John. And uh, finally, I'm glad uh, to join you in uh, this uh, uh, important uh, get-together. And I'm sorry I haven't been able to come for the last uh, few years, although you've been inviting me all these years. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see all these uh, faces to make new friends and to solidify and strengthen my relationship with other uh, old friends. And uh, one word before I start, I'd like also to pinpoint the role that John and uh, the Council on U.S.-Arab Relations have been playing. And we need more of this to bridge the gap and to build more bridges between uh, your country and the Arab world, uh, especially with these tumultuous and uh, landmark events and changes, uh, rather than uh, the suspicion that's still prevailing uh, between the two nations, the Arab nation and the United States. There are a lot of misperceptions, misconceptions, and there are also facts on the grounds that are not really helping. So more of this uh, get-together and communication and uh, 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 annual conferences uh, in the United States and other capitals in the Arab world uh, are needed more than any uh, time before. Um, I listened with interest to my friend Dr. Abdelkhaliq Abdullah's uh, uh, excellent uh, presentation and um, I agree with most of what he said and uh, I would like also to add to what he said a few points in the time allotted uh, for me. First of all, the Arab Spring uh, as a term or the uprisings or uh, we're still grappling with these uh, names. I, I don't know what term to, to name what's going on. Is it an uprising? Is it uh, a revolt? Is it an awakening? Uh, any of these remarks are not important. What's important is that the emboldening of the Arab masses finally 
woken up and have uh, uh, faced uh, the uh, years of corruption and marginalization and being oppressed by their own regimes. This is a landmark and watershed event in the history of the Arab world. Probably in the last 10 months, the Arabs have changed more than they've changed in the last 60 or, or 100 years. The mass media events, the, the, the new technology that this, uh, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and uh, the satellite channels that are uh, being beamed to all these Arabs, even the poor Arabs who, who are illiterate and don't read, uh, they, they could sense that, uh, that this momentous change is uh, probably, uh, should be uh, garnered and should be, should be used uh, to the fullest. The other point is that the, uh, the change, as, as Dr. Abdel Khaliq and I've written in many uh, columns, uh, for the first time has come from within, from within the Arab world. Although there are those who subscribe to conspiracy theory, and I'm always uh, upset when people come up to me and say, could you please tell us, how could you explain, you as a political scientist, all these events going on at the same time? Is it a Western conspiracy? Is it a CIA uh, designed to to topple all these regimes? I say, well, why would the CIA do this? I mean, these, these guys who are the three bad guys who are gone and the two who are teetering on the brink of, of collapsing uh, have been serving uh, the, uh, the stability issue for, for, for too long. So why would anybody in his sane mind uh, uh, shoot himself in the foot or in the head? So, I mean, there are still those who are in the state of denial or those who do not subscribe that these changes have come from within. You don't need to, to entice or, or to convince or to conspire with people who are hungry, who are unemployed, who have lost hope, and who want a better future for their children to go and revolt and to topple the bad regimes. It's very simple. But still, some people... Uh, don't believe that. So for the first time, the change has come within. Second, the second point that I, I would like to also highlight is that the, uh, the long, the, 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 the media and the, uh, and the uh, centric uh, uh, discussion and analysis of the Arab world from academia and from the administration in Washington and other Western capitals have talked about two things have talked about the, the freedom deficit in the Arab world and the Arab exceptionalism. Even Huntington, when he wrote his third wave and others who wrote democracy uh, without Democrats, uh, uh, have not really, were, did not have the hope or, 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 the, or the faith that Arabs, the winds of change that have swept uh, Greece and, and Portugal and uh, went to uh, Latin America and then to even Sub-Sahara Africa would, e it would even come to the Arab world. So because of that there were the, this, the, this argument. So now there, there is a clear indication that the freedom deficit has been bridged. The Arab exceptionalism the genes in the Arab uh, in, in Arabs is not, uh, does not make, them, uh, make Arabs immune to the wind of change or to the change 
So we see the change, and we are now for the first time in probably years since the Arab civilization spread from Andalusia to China, the Arabs have been not only now who have been influenced by, are now influencing factor. Even those who are demonstrating Occupy Wall Street cited that they were inspired by the Arab Spring. So we are with the wind of change is not only affecting Arabs, but it's emboldening Arabs, and at the same time, it's inspiring not only Arabs, but even probably Persians and even Chinese and even in the United States who has been the power of change and influence. So this is, uh, this is my first point. My second point is that the GCC confronting traditional security challenges, future security challenges, the Arab Spring, if I want to call it Spring or Revolt or Uprising or whatever you want to call it, I, I, I don't think we're going we're to agree on a, on a term, but the term is not that important, and how to deal with it and how it affected the, the GCC states, and I'm going to talk a bit about Kuwait. Uh, GCC states, as John said, is now celebrating its 30th uh, anniversary this year, back in May. Uh, GCC has really now, is now really the, the 800 pound gorilla in the Arab world. GCC now is the leader of the Arab world by hands down. Uh, GCC has been uh, playing a major role in major uh, events in the Arab world for, for the last few years. We saw GCC role, leading role in uh, dealing with the, uh, even before, led by Saudi Arabia at the time and now by Qatar, and I agree with Dr. Abdel Khaliq's point that Qatar is probably one of the biggest winners uh, of, the, of, the, of the events now uh, uh, sweeping the, the, uh, the Arab world. Uh, but there are challenges that, uh, traditional challenges and also future ones. The Arab uprising does not represent a major challenge, in my opinion, to the Arab state, uh, to, the, to the GCC states. Yes, it influences people. Yes, it makes uh, uh, leaders squirm a bit and feel that what shall, what shall we do? But there are no forces to change the regime. Like the streets of the Arab world that faced, uh, and the five countries that faced the, these uprisings, the, the slogan was Al-Shaab Yureed Isqat al-Rais Al-Shaab Yureed Taghir al-Nizam Al-Shaab Yureed Adam al-Rais People power wants to do this Want to topple the regime Want to, to, to uh, execute the president Or the head of the state But you didn't hear that Now I admit that I submit to you that Bahrain is a special case Because of its uh, uh, composition Population composition Because of meddling in Bahrain's affair by Iran and stealing or hijacking uh, fair demands by Bahrainis who, are, who feel that they have been uh, targeted or have, or, or, or have been uh, uh, you know, dealt with in not a fair and square way and they need their uh, equality to be equal with the other sect of, uh, in the Bahraini society. But then when it, it was hijacked by the Iranians. It really raised red flag and alarm bells sounded all over the GCC states and even uh, beyond, beyond that. Uh, but there is, there is not as, uh, uh, yes, the people, as Dr. Abdel Khaliq once again said, uh, we're not in a, a revolutionary uh, mood, uh, 
You cannot, I mean, come on, you cannot uh, ask for a revolutionary change when you make $50,000 and you, you don't pay taxes on an annual basis and when you make uh, all this money. So what, but there is need now for the Arab leaders in the GCC states to really work harder on reform, political, economic reform, uh, equality, uh, corruption, uh, and we in Kuwait are uh, hot pursuing this issue, whether in the parliament or civic societies or academia. The other point is that now we are facing a challenges. U.S. is withdrawing in two months from now. And as I said yesterday in my questions to the, to the, to the panel on, on Iraq, it's really beat us, it really beats us in, in, in the Gulf states. Why would U.S. do, do that? Okay, there is so far, there is commitment for the United States to withdraw. Uh, but at the same time, you are emboldening Iran. And Iran is a menacing threat, not only for the GCC states, but for the stability and security of the uh, region as a whole. You lost five, five, uh, f f almost 5,000 soldiers uh, in Iraq, 30,000 injured. You have one point uh, plus billion, a trillion dollars uh, bill to pay for, for, for this adventure. And at the end of the day, you just pack up and leave. So what is the consequences of this move? How do you allay the fear of your allies in the Gulf country where Iran has invested heavily in Iraq? It's, it's, it's the jewel in its crown. And uh, from now on, Iran would say that we won, the Americans have lost. So this is a challenge that I think all the Gulf states are really uh, 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 fearing that it would only escalate, especially with the, with the, uh, the uh, Iraq is now a country in progress. Uh, Iraq is a failed state. We still have uh, uh, Yemen uh, that is on the abyss, facing, uh, living on the edge, and uh, anything could happen in Yemen. Uh, there is the, uh, also the Middle East peace process that it's teetering, and the United States really uh, will uh, not do itself a favor Neither it will do its allies a favor who have been embarrassed time and again by American stance vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the Arab-Israeli peace process uh, that need really to, be, uh, to get attention. But unfortunately, domestic politics in the United States, as Tip O'Neill said once, all politics is local, seems to be dominating the U.S. agenda overseas and especially when it comes to the, to the Arab-Israeli peace process that the Gulf states have been working very hard to convince the Americans that you should do something, there should be a breakthrough in the peace process, and everybody was, was optimistic and happy to see Obama come to office and spoke strongly against even building settlements or expanding settlements, and then he ate his words in front of uh, Bibi Netanyahu when he visited Washington, and he caved in, and he even uh, is now uh, threatening to use the, the, the veto power uh, to uh, prevent a Palestinian state from existing uh, or from declaring, although it's a symbolic thing at, at, uh, at the end. So we are witnessing a lot of changes in the, in the region. We're witnessing uh, in, in the GCC states changes. I'm glad to see also the succession went smoothly in Saudi Arabia. 
uh, and that indicates that uh, institutionalizing uh, changes or, or succession is not the big issue that we read and we feared in the Western uh, press. So GCC is now uh, emerging as the leading uh, power. GCC uh, has been uh, uh, leading the Arab world in all the leading economic uh, indicator. It has been leading the Arab world also in terms of physical quality of life index. Uh, the soft power of the GCC states is a power to be reckoned with. It, com it is now over $1.3 trillion GDP, expected to, to increase to more than $2.2 trillion by 2020, uh, which makes it the largest economic zone in the, in the region spreading from Spain to India. And that by itself carries with it a lot of might and a lot of uh, influence and uh, soft power. Also, the sovereign wealth, wealth funds that the GCC states own and manage and run uh, is, is also uh, uh, something that the GCC state could use in order to, uh, to help development and to help investment in, not only in the West but also in, 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 in other countries. Um, I'd like to talk about Kuwait in my final uh, uh, few minutes, if I have. Uh, Kuwait uh, have been, uh, has been going through a lot of uh, uh, changes. Uh, in the last six years, uh, we have uh, seven cabinets. There has been a power struggle between the uh, opposition-led parliament and uh, uh, the government, and especially the prime minister. Kuwait is probably the most immune uh, from the Arab Spring, if you want to call it. Uh, Kuwait, I mean, all the talk that now is going on, we need a democracy, we need freedom, we need uh, openness. We have it in Kuwait for the last 50 years. Kuwait was the first country in the, in the, in the GCC states before even the establishment of the GCC in the Arabian Gulf uh, to have a, 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 constitu a constitu uh, constitutional assembly uh, to draft the constitution back in 1962. Tunis just had it last week, last Sunday. Uh, we had the first written constitution in 1962. We have the first elected parliament in 1963. Since then we have uh, 13 elected parliaments. Uh, we have expanded the voting rights from 16,000 uh, elect uh, electors uh, in 1963 to 400,000 today. We have one of the highest uh, voters turnout, close at, at times 80%, while in the United States you have it barely in the 30s. So we, uh, we do not want the Arab Spring to influence, to, to, uh, we, we, I mean the Arab Spring will not change much uh, for Kuwaitis. Now, the, what Kuwaitis have been demonstrating uh, for and have been uh, sitting in over is only to cut down on government, uh, uh, you know, uh, services. They need better services. They need more reform in the government. They need the, the, the prime minister, some of them, to be elected from the, uh, from the uh, parliament. Uh, not from the ruling family, for instance. We have also uh, corruption is very rife, uh, unfortunately, in Kuwait. There are, but there is a lot of transparency. 
There is a lot of uh, uh, demands for, for transparency. There is a lot of criticism for the Prime Minister, for leading senior members of the ruling family, which in the other Gulf states, for them, this seems to be so alien and so uh, too much, maybe, to bear. But Kuwait has been accustomed to open press, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and to demonstrate and to show uh, an, an, an open debate, especially in parliament or in diwaniyas, uh, sitting uh, in, in, like in, in, in homes for prominent Kuwaitis, and even for now average Kuwaitis, to have uh, male gathering uh, in order to discuss issues. I just want to end with, uh, with, a few, with a few remarks. So Kuwait is is not really in, 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 in a danger of sweeping change that has been, swept, has been sweeping, uh, sorry, the Arab world, but Kuwait is really leading the, uh, the, the, the Arab uh, GCC states in terms of democracy representation. Now, the fear is that here, that the Kuwait, that, uh, Kuwait model of democracy and representative politics that is now... Uh, coming up to about uh, half a century, 50 years, as a harbinger of reform and political participation has been damaged or injured by what our GCC brethren have been witnessing going on in Kuwait. I was just last week in Abu Dhabi, and, and our annual uh, columnist of the Al-Ittihad newspaper in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, and I, we, there, there are some Gulf scholars, uh, academics from Bahrain, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia. And everybody told me, I mean, what's going on in Kuwait? I mean, you have the most advanced democracy in the region, and yet you are deadlocked. Is this, are these the pains, I call these the, the pains or the pangs of political reforms and democracy. But now they are turned off by our democracy, and probably some of them said, we told our sheikhs that we don't want Kuwait democracy. Kuwait democracy is like, you know, deadlocked. It's always belligerent. They have no reform, uh, economic uh, uh, developments, mega projects to show for because it's deadlocked in, in, in endless debate and argument and tit-for-tat uh, interpolations that really grinded Kuwait into a halt. So, yeah, probably that is the, the downside of uh, Kuwait democracy or uh, laboring this democracy. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, the Gulf countries and Kuwait in particular, I think, will be better off by the movements that have been now sweeping the Arab world. In Kuwait, probably it will be just emboldening the youth to demand to be tough, tough, tougher in their demands for reform and to probably to change the prime minister. But in the other GCC states, I do not think the, this, the winds of Arab uh, Spring uh, will be critical for the rulers of the region or for the masses who are not really uh, subscribing to full-fledged change of their regimes since uh, they, they, they think by, uh, by large that they are not being uh, uh, given the short end of the stick. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Jeremy Jones, who runs his own strategic consulting firm. His primary client for the last quarter of a century has been the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's
intimately connected with the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. His book, Negotiating Change, in many ways uh, envisioned or preconceived the um, movements that have come in the last nine, ten months. He has another one coming out on Oman culture and diplomacy uh, later this year. He's the only person uh, who's not Arab and not American, but who is a senior National Council Distinguished International Affairs Fellow. That's no small thing, because he's a bridge uh, between the British and Arabia and the Gulf, uh, who know Arabia and the Gulf far better than Americans by many standards of measurements there. But he's also a bridge to the United States, and he's a bridge to the Arab world as well. Jeremy Jones. John, John, thank you very much for that um, uh, very generous introduction and for having me back here. And it is interesting to see how things move on. Uh, I remember the first time I came to this conference in 2004, the atmosphere was very different. And indeed, if our keynote speaker yesterday, Chas Freeman, had uh, uh, given, made the remarks he made yesterday, uh, back in 2004, I'm not sure he would have got out of this building alive. So <laughs> things have changed, <laughs> uh, which I welcome. Uh, I'd like to focus on Oman. Um, it's it's uh, been my uh, great privilege to work with Oman and the Omanis um, uh, 33 years, um, uh, most of that time as, a, as an advisor to the government. Um, my participation here is, a, is in a personal capacity. Um, uh, I'm not speaking officially for the government of Oman. It's a, Oman is surely the least well-known of uh, the GCC countries. Um, uh, I'm fairly confident that even in this room, with all the expertise that there is present, there's actually only a handful of people who know Oman well probably no more than five or six. So, uh, in Muscat, uh, in, in the country, uh, two weeks ago, there was an election for the Majlis. The turnout was uh, 76%. 1,133 candidates fought for the 84 seats in the Majlis. Uh, I have the, all the data on the election. If, 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 if anybody wants the numbers, um, please, please ask me. I'd be very, very happy to share them. Um, analyzing the figures, um, there are two themes that are particularly evident. Um, in urban areas, uh, the theme seemed to be participation. So, for example, in one wilayat, there were 48 candidates just for one seat in the Majlis, and in fact the winning candidate only got 8% of the vote. Uh, another 12 candidates got over 5% of the vote, and indeed the 24th placed got 1% of the vote, so very evenly spread. In rural areas, um, um, uh, it, was, it was very different. Um, uh, for example, in, 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 in Hema, um, there were 12 candidates. 99% of the vote went to the first two candidates. Uh, 
the third place candidate got one vote and the other nine candidates got no votes at all. Now, what was going on here? I, I, I think there were deals being brokered. In other words, um, people promoted their candidacy, candidacy to get some leverage. They got the leverage they wanted, and then they, they, then they told their supporters to go vote for the other guy. Um, it's very interesting looking at these um, indigenous uh, uh, political processes that in, in, in some way echo the sort of democratic politics that we're used to and in some ways it's, it's, it's very, very different. Um, it certainly wasn't um, an election for uh, uh, the less traditional candidates. For example, I have a friend who's a, a leading public intellectual in Oman who's been widely quoted in international press coverage of Oman through this year, and, and you know he got 11 votes. Um, a, a, a woman who's a lawyer who advertised um, uh, widely in the local press, which will have cost her quite a bit of money, she got 28 votes. Um, it's people in the traditional social networks who got support, and it's the traditional social networks that uh, really um, uh, guided the outcome. Um, at the beginning of this year, in, in, in January, um, uh, Secretary Clinton um, visited Oman and in a town hall meeting uh, she um, spoke very generously about Oman's uh, development achievement. She in particular referred to the United Nations Development Report of last year which um, uh, sought to assess the development progress made by each member state of the UN over a 40-year time frame. It so happens that Oman came first and uh, Secretary Clinton was kind enough to say that if they could uh, bottle whatever it is that makes musket work, it would be a, a good thing to take to other, other places. Why is it that we know so little about Oman? Well, as a, uh, a famous Norwegian anthropologist uh, put it, he, uh, Frederick Barth, he said, uh, it's the ideology of politeness. In traditional Omani society, any form of self-promotion is abhorrent. It's impolite. And uh, this actually uh, impacts on the way His Majesty the Sultan conducts policy. He doesn't, he doesn't like to boast. The government is told not to boast, not to promote. And so there's a, there's a great deal um, uh, that, that simply isn't known. Um, I mentioned uh, the election that happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, the first match of this election took place in 1991. There were also elections in 94 and 97, and all those three elections um, were indirect elections. The first direct elections took place in 2000, and then there have been direct elections under a universal franchise in 2003, 2007, and then just two, two weeks ago. So the, the uh, democratization theme has been active in Muscat for, 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 for quite some time some time. Um, I'd like to speak uh, um, 
briefly um, about the philosophy of uh, the Sultan Qaboos. Um, somebody the other day suggested to me that he's been the only strategic thinker in the region since Yitzhak Rabin, which is an interesting way of looking at it, I believe. Um, Qaboos has been energized by the Arab awakening uh, after, I think only three weeks after Secretary Clinton's visit at the beginning of the year, there were demonstrations in Soha, in the north, and also in Salalah in the south. Very regrettably, three people lost their lives, and the government responded uh, actively and quickly in some ways that we can understand readily. For example, uh, the Majlis has been granted stronger legislative powers. For example, radio and TV have been made independent of government, and indeed one big feature of the local radio this year has been phone-ins. Uh, I have a friend who owns a radio station who was running these phone-ins, which really gave anybody um, access to the public domain who was simply prepared to pick up his phone. Now, um, um, His Majesty sent personal messages to the people active in radio, encouraging them to expand and uh, promote the use of these phone-ins as a way of, um, as a way of uh, conducting national dialogue. Um, other measures that the government took in response to demonstrations are more difficult for us to, to, to make sense of. <coughs> Uh, for example, there was an immediate commitment to uh, create 50,000 new jobs. Now, whether those are going to be meaningful jobs and so on and so forth is obviously an issue. Um, some of the demands of the youth are hard to make sense of. They, they press for forgiveness of personal debts. They press for the lowering of exam pass marks. Um, as, as, as one of the university vice-chancellors put it to me, said, sure, we're going to do that, but we're going to make the questions a little bit more difficult. Um, so uh, there is naivety, and, and, and um, uh, the process of uh, development, as you know, is a very long-term process. Forty years ago, illiteracy in Oman ran at over 90%, and from that very low base... It's simply unrealistic to expect to have a highly educated uh, technocratic population just 40 years later. Education is a multi-generational multi task and um, this is uh, something that of course is not understood by the youth. They've got university degrees, uh, they believe they're competent to uh, go straight into some middle management white collar job. Well, regrettably, it just isn't the case. It's simply not the case. Educational standards are not yet at, 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 at a, a level for the indigenous population to form its own technocracy. This is something that's, um, this is something that's uh, uh, going to take time. Um, the Iwani Basic Law, which is essentially a, a short constitution, um, was promulgated in 1996. Because of the Omani um, distaste for boasting, I'm sure um, uh, I'm well aware that its contents are, are simply not known. Um, 
There are three articles that I find particularly interesting. Article 9 grants the right to all citizens to take part in public affairs. Article 11 asserts that the economic system for the state shall be the free market. Um, to my knowledge, it's the only constitution in the world that actually specifies an economic system. Article 33, this is very interesting. Um, there's long been a canard among uh, ignorant commentators about Oman that political parties are banned. That's the conventional belief. It's simply not true. Article 33 of the 1996 Basic Law grants the freedom to form associations on a national basis. I had the opportunity to interview Sultan Qaboos some years after that, and I asked him whether it was his intention with Article 33 to create a space in which political parties could develop. And he confirmed, yes, indeed, that was his intention. Uh, so, the philosophy of Caboose. I think a, a, a formative moment for him was actually the, the big changes in Europe at the end of the 1980s. He saw what was going on. He realized that the whole world was now in a television age, that if the people next door had a better way of life, there's no way you could keep that secret from your people. And this is what led him to, um, to introduce the... Uh, political development measures of the 1990s. Um, because of its Indian Ocean history, Oman has a history, Oman's been a country for 4,000 years. Its people have traveled around the Indian Ocean Rim for all that time. This means that culturally there's a, there's a deep cosmopolitanism um, and uh, this, this informs uh, Caboose's way of thinking. Uh, relations with Iran are excellent. I believe the Omanis are one of the very few foreign interlocutors of Iran that are able to get beyond the President's office and into the Supreme Leader's office. And that's what you have to be able to do if you want to do business successfully with Iran. Uh, also, Oman has excellent relations with the United States. Uh, privately, the people I talk to in the U.S. tell me there's nobody in the region who they trust more or respect more than Caboose. Now, uh, the U.S. should make more use of this channel. Only the other day, the, the hikers um, uh, were released from Iran, which obviously we were, we were delighted by. But there are... There, there are other uh, issues being discussed that, um, where there are some steps the United States could make um, that could be helpful to getting a dialogue going. Uh, Oman believes that for stability in the Gulf region, Iran has to be part of the, has to be part of the picture. You can't wish Iran away. It is, a, it is a big power in the region. This is a fact of life. And the best way to deal with your enemy, as you all know, is to make him your friend. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I hope that's of interest, and, and uh, uh, thanks again for, for, for having me. And um, uh, I, I would urge the United States to make use of the channel that Oman offers. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Jeremy. Our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Matea, who is the Executive Director of the Middle East Policy Council. It's one of the leading sister organizations uh, in the field with regard to the cause we seek to serve. It produces a quarterly uh, magazine, Middle East Policy, which is far and away the best in terms of Arabia and the Gulf as its essential focus, but uh, it has other emphases as well. Uh, he has written the definitive book on Iran's occupation of the three UAE uh, occupied islands that I commend to any of you. I believe that you can make arrangements for its purchase at a book sales uh, area there. Um, he also is the author of uh, Gulf Security Watch and a reference uh, handbook. Tom Matea. Thank you. Uh, thank you, John and Joe. Um, and the Middle East Policy Council respects everything that your organization has done in the last 30 years. I have a challenging assignment and uh, perhaps not a lot of time, so let me just start and say that um, the, the King of Bahrain, who came to power in 1999, has introduced a lot of reform over the past decade, political, economic, and social reform. He's introduced a two-chamber parliament. Uh, he has diversified and liberalized uh, the economy and not only made Bahrain a banking center, for example, but has also tried to reduce foreign em employment and to increase employment opportunities for his own people. Uh, and there has been a relatively free press and speech and education and, and health care available. And uh, these reforms have been noted favorably by many international actors, and someone just referenced the UN Development Report, which which reported positively about Bahrain. But these reforms uh, have not gone far enough or fast enough uh, for many in the population, particularly for the Shia, who do constitute the majority. And there certainly is more to be done. Um, but I would say that being a Shia is not a bar to advancement. There are Shia in the legal profession, there are Shia in the medical profession, in the corporate boardrooms, Shia receiving government-sponsored scholarships, <coughs> Shia working in the government, particularly Ministry of Health, uh, and in the upper chamber of the parliament, and, which is appointed, and um, the, Minister of Oil, the Minister of Oil is, is Shia, and that is not an inconsequential post, because that represents 25% of their gross domestic product. The, the uprisings in February were inspired in part by what seemed to be successful revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt, but clearly they were also a manifestation of uh, disappointments over the past decade, particularly on the part of the young who need more employment and need more housing and who want political opportunity. For example, more power in the hands of the lower chamber of the parliament. King Hamad's offer of uh, $2,650 to every family, his offer to liberalize media laws, which were already relatively liberal, and to replace some cabinet ministers uh, 
were not enough for the protesters. And when the government responded with excessive force on February 17th, killing five protesters, um, then the, the more extreme political societies in Bahrain began calling for the end of the Khalifa dynasty and introduction of a democratic republic. And those would be Al-Haq, which is uh, a Shia Islamist group, and um, Al-Wafa, Al um, another Shia Islamist group. After this tragic event, King Hamad uh, did meet some of the demands of the protesters. He withdrew the military from the streets. He withdrew the police from the Pearl Roundabout, offered a national dialogue to be conducted by his son, the Crown Prince. And although the press said that Al-Wafaq, the, the, the largest Shia Islamist political society, had rejected entering the talks, the fact of the matter is that there were talks, and Al-Wafaq did participate in them in, in March. And the, the Crown Prince made a number of offers of reform. And basically, I can't list all of them, but they, the gist of them was to, to give more power to the lower house, uh, to give the, the house more oversight over cabinet uh, uh, appointments and, and behavior of cabinet officers, to provide more equal opportunity for services to the Shia majority. Um, and uh, al-Wafaq, uh, rejected those terms. Um, Al-Wafaq took the terms to their spiritual leader, Isa Qasim, and said, would you approve these? And he said, no. More about that later. Um, it, was this a purely domestic affair? Uh, certainly the, the grievances, the disappointments are real enough and uh, need to be addressed. And certainly more research will need to be done on this, but there are some pieces of evidence that are beginning to, to uh, lead to a conclusion that there, there was some Iranian involvement. First, of course, there's the Iranian media, the 24-hour television broadcasts in Arabic, uh, and the media from Hezbollah, al-Manar, and uh, Shia Islamist media from, from Iraq. Um, and that was, um, for the most part, um, voiced by Hadi al-Mudarisi, who is a Shia, who was involved in the 1981 attempt to overthrow the monarchy. He's an Iraqi Shia. Um, I have heard government officials say that they discovered unusual amounts of Iranian currency in the hands of protesters who were arrested. Uh, one particular Saudi analyst, Nawaf Obeyed, has said that um, uh, Golam Shakuri, this individual who's alleged to have been involved in a plot to assassinate the Saudi ambassador, was someone known to the, to the Saudis as a Quds Force officer and that they have telephone intercepts of him in February this year trying to direct the opposition in Bahrain. Um, so there are reasons to be very skeptical in this town after what we've been 
treated to uh, since uh, 9/11, and document more more documentation would be would be appreciated. But uh, there is some evidence starting to uh, starting to pile up. Uh, the opposition made a number of, of pretty significant mistakes, in my opinion. Um, as I said, they, they rejected the terms offered by the Crown Prince. And in mid-March, they began to block access to the financial district of Manama, which would have choked off a segment of the economy that accounts for 23% of the gross domestic product. And then they also marched on the Rifa residential neighborhood, which is the neighborhood where the ruling family lives, and there were there were clashes there because the security uh, stopped them uh, from approaching the compounds, and that was a mistake. Uh, you, if you were a member of the ruling family, you would you would think that was a red line, and you might make a phone call asking for the GCC to intervene, and they did, and. Uh, uh, as I said, there was also, at that very time, um, Al-Wafak was rejecting the terms offered by the Crown Prince. And at that point, John Vinicourt of the New York Times wrote in the International Herald Tribune that an unnamed senior official traveling with Secretary Gates in the Gulf said that U.S. intelligence had evidence that Iran was attempting to influence Al-Wafak to reject the terms offered by the Crown Prince. Um, I'm about halfway through this. Uh, I think I'll finish fast if I can. Uh, why, why would al-Wafaq reject this uh, when its leader is reputedly a moderate who supports democracy? I, uh, you would have to look at the speeches and the, the, the publications of their spiritual leader who extols Khomeini the Iranian Revolution, the, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran's political system, the principle of Waliyati Ifaki, the rule of the jurisprudent, and who disparages democracy for an understanding of why they would re reject those terms. The other GCC states were observing all this, and uh, the wealthier ones provided economic assistance to Bahrain uh, so that it can stabilize the political situation and address the economic grievances that had been building up. And then they introduced the, the uh, Saudi National Guard and UAE police. And that led to, and, and then the, the, the king introduced a state of emergency. And we know the, the tragic events that followed. Uh, there were deaths, there were arrests and firings and revocation of scholarship and harsh sentences. And uh, there will be, a, there is a Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry of international jurists who will be reporting in about three weeks on the causes of the unrest and, and uh, the reaction of the regime to the unrest, particularly at this time. And uh, we'll find out if, uh, if anyone is particularly responsible for what happened on February 17th or afterwards. But at, and and I, I don't know. We will find out if someone ordered it. But I was once a professor at Kent State, and that university has never recovered from May 4th, 1970. But one thing we know is that the President of the United States did not call the commander of the National Guard and order him to shoot the, the protesters, uh, the students on our campus. We, and neither did, these, neither did the governor of Ohio order it. Um, we now have um, uh, 
recent elections to replace the al-Wafaq members who resigned from the parliament. They were boycotted. There wasn't a good turnout. Uh, opposition has now introduced what they call the Manama document, which lists their demands. And these demands are, by their own admission, in the, own, in the document, very similar to what the Crown Prince offered in March and what they rejected in March. But he has less political capital now than he did in March, and it's not clear that uh, they'll be able to get the same terms now. The Sunnis thought that they were too generous. The regime is making some efforts to reinstate people to their jobs, to their scholarships, uh, to retry people. I won't go into all that, but it's all there. And I have just a moment to say something else about the GCC. For the GCC states that intervened, Iran was a major factor. They were not going to permit Iran to establish another base of influence similar to what they have already established in Iraq. Uh, in part, they didn't want this to spill over and, and uh, influence their own Shia populations to rise up, but I think that's a minor consideration compared to Bahrain itself. And we're not going to know the full extent of Iranian involvement for some time. But certainly, Iran would have seen a victory for the organized, well-funded uh, political societies with an agenda uh, who would take this away from the people in the street. Iran would have seen this as an opportunity to extend their influence and something they could uh, exploit. And the intervention was meant to take that opportunity away from Iran. Uh, critics have said their, their intervention exacerbated the situation and created a sectarian conflict. It was already a sectarian conflict. Uh, Al-Wafaq is not a secular, it, it, it may be the most moderate of the Islamist parties there, but it's not a secular liberal party. It's a Shia Islamist party. And the sectarian dimension is illustrated by the fact that you have Shia people like al-Maliki uh, condemning the Sunni monarchy for its behavior. Uh, the most important thing to consider right now is um, what opportunities will be presented to Iran uh, and what setbacks will be suffered by the GCC if Bahrain does not take advantage of the st stability that has been restored to introduce really serious reform. One second. Um, that is uh, something that um, Middle East Policy Council President Emeritus Chas Freeman said yesterday, it's time for reform. But here's a question. How much reform can the regime offer and at what pace so that there is greater popular participation and, and, and greater access to services without strengthening the hands of forces that would use democratic processes to introduce illiberal, intolerant, anti-democratic, anti-GCC, anti-American policies? That's the question the Bahrain government has to, has to answer. And as for the GCC, the last thing I'll say is, although uh, it has, was said in March that Saudi Arabia was leading a counter-revolution, that's not enough. It doesn't go deep enough. Uh, I think that Saudi Arabia and the other GCC, GCC states were also making geopolitical calculations, not, not just about how to preserve their own regimes and systems of government, but making geopolitical calculations about how to curb and contain Iranian power in the region. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I, I hope and I believe 
many who do focus on Bahrain and Arabia and the Gulf realize how difficult it is for any friends of Bahrain to speak candidly about the realities and the dynamics there so that we found one. We are immensely grateful to you, Tom, for enlightening us. Our last speaker is Robert Lacey, no stranger to this audience, producer of prodigious volumes of writings, not just on Arab-related issues, uh, but historical, biographical figures as well. Robert Lacey. I'll try to be quick, yeah. Thank you, John Duke. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you to all my fellow uh, participants in this panel, having shed so much light on the GCC. I had a few comments of my own um, prepared in this context. Um, I think most of them have already been covered. Um, and I thought I would dwell in my brief eight minutes on the news, what happened last night in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the election, the first ever election uh, by the uh, Allegiance Council, first sign, well, not the very first sign, but a sign of progress in Saudi Arabia, um, reform of Crown Prince Naif and uh, what that means for the future of uh, Saudi Arabia, for us in the West, and uh, also for the GCSE as well. Um, there's been a lot of um, apprehension expressed about Prince Naif. He is a conservative. Um, he controls the, as Minister of the Interior, the notorious religious police who seem to inspire such fear um, in the West and very little fear actually among Saudis. Um, and it seems to me, as I look back at the history of Saudi Arabia, this is very much in a pattern. There is a real pattern of Western apprehension and I would say scaremongering about the new candidates who rise to the top in, in Saudi Arabia. There's always... Um, warnings about the Crown Prince way back when I started writing um, my book The Kingdom uh, people said Crown Prince Khalid the successor to um, uh, King Faisal who took over so dramatically after Faisal's assassination that, that he would be a rubber stamp that he'd be an entity he was a nice old guy put there by the family well that didn't prove to be the case he proved to be quite a decisive ruler who made a very important impact after the seizing of the Grand Mosque in Mecca um, and uh, dealing with what followed from that. Everybody said Crown Prince Fahad would be a Western playboy. Well, in fact, uh, under King Fahad, you saw more religion um, and less westernization um, in Saudi Arabia than before. Now, that was very much a response to events in 1979. When it comes to Crown Prince Abdullah with his stutter, uh, he was supposed to be notoriously anti-American. Well, look, as what look at what has happened. For a start, he employed an American speech therapist to get rid of the stutter. I think it should be a, a film about King Abdullah called The King's Speech, uh, because that's quite a story in itself. Um, now, uh, there are more Saudi students in America um, than ever before. That's thanks to the King Abdullah scholarships, to such a degree that the religious extremists um, are now saying uh, in Saudi Arabia it's a sin if you take up these scholarships. It's become a big domestic issue because they can see the changes that King Abdullah is trying to, and will certainly and is accomplishing through the vast numbers of young Saudis who come to this country and look at this arms deal that we've had discussed so frequently today. The biggest arms deal in history um, it's quite knocked the British and the French and the Germans, all of us out of the box. 
Um, and as everybody has said, it is more than just a matter of money. It represents a very, very long-term commitment um, on the part of King Abdullah and thus of Saudi Arabia um, to, uh, to the, 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 the Saudi-US um, uh, commitment. So where does that leave us with um, the much-feared uh, Prince Naif? Um, he is a conservative. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And that, in that, of course, he is like most Saudis. Um, before uh, the, the um, Arab Spring, or whatever we're going to call it, um, the British Embassy, we can take a little credit for this, working, I think, with the Polish Embassy, a few months before, decided they would like to do a survey on Saudi attitudes towards change. A, a, an opinion poll, if you like. Um, and the figures were roughly this, that 20% of Saudis said they would like more change, 20% said things were just about okay, and 60% said there had been too much change. They didn't want any more westernization. There are already enough cheeky kids not paying attention to their parents. There are already enough um, women who were dressing in provocative ways and using these newfangled mobile phones to make secret dates. They didn't want Saudi Arabia to become more westernized. They were very proud they lived in a country where there are no old people's homes, where old people live at home and are revered. And incidentally, that's a very important point to remember when we in the West and the Western media consider that just because a man has become old, he should be kicked aside and the younger generation should move forward. Well, that is not how Saudi Arabia works. And you just have to go there to see it and to see the enormous respect that is given um, to older people by the younger generation throughout society and in, um, and in the workings of the royal family. So... Um, what, what does this tell us about what uh, Prince Naif is likely uh, to be? He, as I say, he represents the conservative strand in society. I, as a Brit, um, like to see what is now happening in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's become formalized now, but it's been the case for some months with the sad illness of Prince Sultan. What you've got in Saudi Arabia is just the same as Britain. You've got a conservative liberal alliance at the top of the government. Um, King Abdullah is the liberal um, and uh, Prince Naif is the conservative. And I hear from people in Riyadh that the two of them actually, far from being at loggerheads, work very well indeed together. Who was it in the royal family who pushed through the Allegiance Council, um, which last night, in fact, voted in Prince Naif? Well, I hear from uh, people who were at those meetings when there were many, people, many princes saying, well, let's leave it for a bit. And, of course, there was the argument that the so-called Suderi 7 or 6 or 5, as they now are, um, wouldn't like the whole family voting. It was Prince Knife who said, um, no, we, we, we don't push this off to the next meeting. It's a good idea. Um, at least let's have a little, well, I don't think he said this. Let's have a little bit of real democracy in Saudi Arabia. Those are votes that count. Um, he said, let's push it through. And so it was pushed through. Another thing, uh, when uh, King Abdullah announced recently, surprised everybody with rights for women, uh, the principle of rights for women, so much more important than why can't women drive? Women will come to drive in Saudi Arabia. I'll come back to that um, uh, later. Um, women will certainly drive in Saudi Arabia. The important thing that King Abdullah established, and yes, I think he did take advantage of the Arab Spring. We heard of Sultan Qaboos um, being energized by the Arab Spring and using it to bring in more reforms. That's just what's happened in Saudi Arabia. The package in, uh, in March 
uh, the enormous welfare and housing and reform package. Uh, King Abdullah took advantage of what was happening in the Arab world to go to the Ministry of Finance, who were always telling him, you can't risk uh, uh, devaluing the, the, the real, we've got to be very careful, we've got to keep a surplus, and said, look, the time has come to spend some money and to spend some money uh, in ways that will benefit everybody. And um, he pushed it through. One of his reforms, as I say, was um, the principle of, of rights for women. And it was wonderful to watch Vox Pops on Saudi Arabia because uh, all the women were delighted. Um, um, Oman, incidentally, is not the only country that has Vox Pops and phone-ins. We have them in Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, the women, naturally, were delighted by the vote. The men were not so sure. The men would say things like, well, King Abdul is a very wise king. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. I'm sure he's taken good advice, um, all this sort of thing. They wouldn't dare. Uh, I'm not saying it's full democracy in Saudi Arabia. They wouldn't dare to television to, uh, to uh, denigrate or criticize the king. But it showed very clearly that the king once again was ahead of many people in the population. Many men were not happy with it. Many men remain unhappy with it. Members of the ulama have criticized it and are not happy with it. What happened? Prince Naif came out and loyally and sincerely and genuinely said this was right, this was Islamic, this was the way ahead for Saudi Arabia. So that, um, I feel, was a, a, a very good example of this conservative liberal alliance moving along and I believe will move Saudi Arabia even faster along the path of some of the reforms we've been hearing about um, um, uh, today. I think it's a little time before we see a Saudi parliament arguing quite like uh, we see in Kuwait. Um, but who knows? There are many Saudis who say, well, that, that, that's not the first step. John Duke asked us to keep our remarks to eight minutes so you can all say something. I'm going to stop at that point. I will just make one prediction. Um, I will predict that it will be in the reign of King uh, Naif, and I'm not wishing in any way the, the, the end of King Abdullah, but it will be in the reign of this conservative that women drive in Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, <coughs> Robert. Um, four important announcements here. Um, the number of questions that have been handed to us up here are 36. Um, point one, they will all be answered but by email. Otherwise, we'd be here till Tuesday, and I know some people have weekend plans. The second <clears throat> point is on the logistics. It's an extraordinary uh, crew here at this building where they can actually clear all of these tables and set the place for lunch in less than half an hour, but they have to have that half an hour to do that. And during that half an hour, it's a half an hour for you to network with people you've not met, you have met, if you want to spend some social accommodational uh, time uh, with. And thirdly, we have an accommodational logistics and operational challenge. As I mentioned, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal Al-Saud uh, came here last night just to be with us here today after all. And so he will be speaking shortly after the lunch. And we're doing this to accommodate him and your wish that you have an opportunity to hear from him. Fourthly, there's one particular book in the bookstore 
that you may think you can find in other bookstores. It's not. It's, it's presented here only. It's in a limited edition, uh, the author being Lynn Abercrombie and the collection and the essays of Lynn and her famous uh, deceased husband, Thomas Abercrombie, for the National Geographic magazine over the better part of half, half a century. So the book is only here, not elsewhere, and she's also here uh, to sign it. And uh, lastly, I wanted to recognize someone else who's an outstanding friend of the American people and those who are trying to strengthen and expand and improve the overall Arab-U.S. relationship. Please join me in recognizing His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Talal bin Abdulaziz El Saud. Now, if we can move to the bookstore, the restroom facilities, and or the atrium, and have your networking experience. But not before thanking all of these great speakers we've had. Thank you, John. Hey. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thirty-six. Is that a record for panels? <laughs> this year's uh, panels. Yes, Maybe fifteen. Most of them are on what? Thirty-six is them there, all across the board. Maybe five or six more Others not so well informed about Jordan and Morocco. Oh. Yeah. Oh.